A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Josh, what's your favorite audio slave song? <laughs> To everyone listening, the reason that this podcast has gone out in two parts, it's not, but this is the narrative I'm spinning, is Good. because we got so busy and sidetracked in the office because Scott Tilford was introducing me to Audio Slave. And who's the other one? Uh, Soundgun. Who's the other one? Soundgun. You never heard of them before. Man hadn't heard of Chris Cornell, so I had to do a round trip of Audio Slave and Soundgarden. I mean, someone, anyone in my, you know, so let's say a few meter radius should be aware of Chris Cornell, Audio Slave, and Soundgarden. Normally, when you bring up one of these bands, like, because I used to rinse the um, music channels way back in the day, like uh-huh. the rock music channels. So I, I at least kind of like know a song or a chorus or a video. Yeah. With these two bands, I was just sat there like, how have I got this massive blind I just, spot, if man? you were like a, if you were a, a frequenter of Kerrang or Skurs or whatever across the early 2000s, I cannot believe you didn't know Audio Slave's Kashi's video. Well, there was some... Like the, the the harder bands, mm. um, I sometimes would like just turn off. I told you that, right. like I never got into like corn and whatnot. Mm. I was more pop punk, you know what I mean. Yeah, I was yeah, more yeah. into like the offspring was like as hard as I got in terms of <laughs> that period. And then slip other not, times, not for me. Slipknot slip for oh, me. Slip, certainly not for me back then. I've come to appreciate Slipknot and like Bring Me the Horizon yeah, now, yeah. but I was a snotty. Bloody uh, Green Day, <laughs> Blink-182, Weezer fan, so... Oh, Weezer fan. everything else. Big As Weezer a, fan. Oh, Weezer, I saw Weezer live. This is not a music podcast, although if we ever resurrect the World Culture Music channel, we will do the same thing. Absolutely, and to be fair, if for this start, it is because the reason that we're splitting today's podcast into two yes. is because, once again, I'm missing a Monday because <laughs> this Sunday I'm going to London to see Lana Del Rey and I can't get back in time for the podcast, so it's hopefully... It's not Audio Slave, is it? It's not Audio Slave, no. so we're going to film... Well, we're going to record... Yes. The two parts of this podcast, the first half today and the second half, hopefully tomorrow. So yes. we won't miss the day. No, everything will make sense in terms of the regular, the way that things regularly roll out. We're going to do the greatest games of all time, according to Scott and Josh. And we'll just see what this is. This is entirely subjective ranking. I have no idea what yours is. We're going to do 10 till 6 um, on this week's show, and we'll do 5 to 1 next week. And uh, we'll just see how it goes. I just shot from the hip with this. I just want what comes to mind when I think of this. Um, because if it's that good, it'll be on my mind anyway. But. You almost didn't come in with even a list sketched out, which kind of blew my mind, but I appreciate <laughs> it because like you said before we started recording, if it doesn't immediately come to mind, is it worthy of being on the top 10? I wanted to do this podcast, I must admit, because I, I was trying to force you into it, Scott. Yes. I was like, please let us do this topic. One, because we've never actually done this before. We've sometimes done a chatty mm. face or something, or we've mentioned in passing what might be in our top five? What is our favorite game of all time? But I realized over the weekend, I've never sat down and actually sketched out if someone came to me and said, what are your favorite, 10 favorite games of all time? Right, right. I would probably know the first three and they were uh, what ended up being my top three. Mm -hmm. But after that, there's so many games. I'm not sure if you know this. There's so many good games (laughs) that have released over the decades we've been alive that Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. It, it gave me a nice thing to do on a Monday morning. No, man. Well, I think for me, it's always like, obviously, me and you, we did a whole uh, podcast once on the whole ob- objectivity. Subjectivity, the approach to reviews, the approach to whether a game is actually good or whether do you actually like it. I mean, the case in point, and it's not on my top 10 games of the year, like all games of all time list, is the new AEW game. Something that is largely on fire, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's not objectively good, but subjectively, I'm liking it. Yeah. Um, which is to say that when we do the greatest games of all time, they are according to each of us. Um, and we'll just break these things down. Like I said, my criteria initially was what comes to mind. And then I went back on some older articles that I've done because I'm a dinosaur and I've written a lot of stuff <laughs> in 10 years of doing this uh, for what culture. So I went back on some of our old best games of the 90s, best games of the 2000s, best games of the 2010s that were all written by me. Um, and just, is anything on there that I missed? No, most of the stuff was just what my mind conjured up anyway. Yeah. So with that in mind, my number 10 greatest game of all time personally is Assassin's Creed 2. Whoa! Yeah, I yeah. was so... Ah, oh, this is why I, I knew... I'm so pleased you started <laughs> with this. Because I was really wondering... I was trying to think of the games that you mentioned previously. And I know you're a huge fan of those early Assassin's Creed yeah, games. Man. But I was wondering, in 2023... Does Scott Telford still consider can those... Can he remember? The, can he remember <laughs> back in the day? Remember, does he consider them still one of the greatest yeah. of all time? So yeah. please tell me why Assassin's Creed 2 has made this list. There was... They'll, they'll never get it back. Ubisoft will never get it back what it felt like, that original rollout of Assassin's Creed from the original trailers before the first game when they just showed all the stuff with who would later become Altair walking through the environments with the hidden blade and everyone was like, what the hell is this game? And there are different glitches and visual stuff in the trailer. It's like Something else seems to be going on. And they were... The, all the sci-fi stuff, all the modern day stuff was barely shown beforehand and they played their hand so masterfully. I love that original game. I love the reveals of Subject 16 and I love the, the way that it ends. All the stuff with like all the eagle vision, all the different scrollings on the wall, realizing that like, oh, we're building to like, you know, this idea of a modern day assassin learning from the past and all the different ways the animus works and just all the rules of that world that were coming together at the very beginning because they had Patrice Desley leading the whole thing. They had like a overarching vision. I think at the time it was for five games and um, maybe six. And that was what they were going for. And so at the end of Assassin's Creed 1, I, like, I, like I said, loved that game. And everything just was perfectly building to the next one. And then you get Assassin's Creed 2, which perfectly built on the gameplay side of things. Fleshed out all the different moves that you had. You could disarm people. You could fight uh, unarmed if you wanted. I thought the combat just picked up beautifully. And, the, and like I said, the story just built on it. Exact, it's exactly what I want. I'm yeah. the guy who loves Lost and loves Metal Gear and loves a big, stupid, convoluted lore that I can still follow. That's why I'm not a big Kingdom Hearts fan. I need to be able to follow it. <laughs> and so like it's one of those things where Assassin's Creed was like laying the table just so well and it's hard to um, you know, remember that now because it's such a bloated over the top thing. We just did a news on how Ubisoft have 11 games in production right now um, for Assassin's Creed, but it was like, it was just that game that like perfectly played out and it has one of the best endings ever, personally, mm-hmm. I think. Um, the whole reveal of Minerva and she's talking to Desmond, but she's actually, well, she's talking to Ezio, but she's actually talking to Desmond through time. Um, the whole sort of reveal with that, I know fans don't know what I mean, but there's like a whole reveal with the character um, which just directly addresses what a lot of fans at the time thought was happening and it was just that whole thing of that cut to black uh, to me as iconic AF and having Desmond say what the F straight after that as I said it as child me yeah. teenage me you're not going to get better than, better than that that was the absolute apex of that franchise even though I think Brotherhood plays better 2 has way better story you've answered my question before well, I was going to go into um, my gushing thoughts about Assassin's <laughs> Creed 2 I was going to ask you what what makes this above Brotherhood? Which, if I was doing a list of my favorite Assassin's Creed, mm. I would probably have higher 
than two because of those gameplay improvements that but you mentioned does there. Play better, yeah. Is it just the kind of, like you said, the story and the monumental feeling of AC2 that kind of Yeah, it, it was just, they, the, to me, they paid off all the mystery from, from one perfectly. And it was just, they, they, it felt like there's so few things, be it TV, movie, or game, um, can take you on that mystery, what's really happening ride. Um, and even rarer are the, at the end of that, it's actually satisfying. And being in the middle of like, you know, something that was kicking off in terms of like, what are we going for? How does the ancient world, uh, all these different gods that they're t- like teasing and all these different lore aspects and the animus and Abstergo and all that kind of stuff. And I just felt like that was, this was the perfect continuation of that. It was just yeah. such a propellant sequel that I absolutely loved it. And because it played so well, I just rocketed through it. And it's the ending. I never really liked Brotherhood's ending. I just thought it was a bit cheap. Right. Um, the whole thing with like um, possessing Lucy and having the um, the whole stab thing and whatever. I just it didn't it did very little for me. I think they brought it back in uh, Revelations where they had the whole thing with Ezio and Altair and like like tales told over time. But there's something about that original propellant feeling of Assassin's Creed where it was like this is the new IP. Yeah. And it was just it was just Oh, they were, they played it all so well. Yeah, they did, man. Like Assassin's Creed Two dropped with such a thunderous kind of entrance, didn't it? Like <laughs> it made waves. It felt monumental. It mm. felt big. I think what people should appreciate more is kind of how much Assassin's Creed Two felt like a prestige bit of gaming at yeah, the time, yeah. which might sound weird considering how formulaic the franchise got and how it got annualized mm. and we kind of got these games all the time. But I remember how bold the opening of AC2 felt when you you know, you know start with a younger Ezio and you kind of go through that lengthy introduction and kind of like grow up with him. Mm. I remember at the time being a, maybe a bit too young for it and being like, come on, I want to get to the right. assassinating stuff. I don't <laughs> want this, but... At the time, it just felt like, no, 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 we're telling a story. We're being methodical in our approach. Mm. We're going to take as much time as we need to start with to introduce you to this world and these characters. Mm. And ultimately, that paid off because we're how many games away from the Ezio trilogy? And we still talk about Ezio and those characters in that setting all the time. You know, Mm. they remastered them. That still held up as like the pinnacle of the Assassin's Creed um, franchise so far. Mm. And kind of for good reason. Totally, man. It's, it's just they, like I said, they built on all this stuff gameplay wise, but it was just it was a sense of place, and it was like freeing up a lot of the um, explorative systems. Like the, the parkour was like expanded on quite a lot. Ezio was a great character. The different um, costumes you get for him are awesome. Yeah. Um, it was just like, and then looking after Monteregioni was really cool, and it was just like it just had everything. AC Two is by far my my personal favorite game, even though, like you said, if I had to sort of rank them more objectively or whatever, Brotherhood does play better because of all the um, summoning the assassins and planning all that stuff out. I just wasn't as satisfied by. Um, the story side of things and the more you look into the behind the scenes stuff that was when Patrice Desley started to sort of step away because their original plan for um, like I said it was either five or six games started to very much be scuppered because it was like whoever you know within Ubisoft was like this is making a lot of money we need to stretch this thing out yeah Um, and I think his last game became AC3 that he left halfway through um, development and you can really tell so, yeah. I have such a weird relationship with those early Assassin's Creed mm. games because they have such a place in my heart. I loved them enough to make a ritual out of them. So from right. Assassin's Creed 2 onwards, up until um, Assassin's Creed Black Flag, which is the first one I didn't get, mm. I would get them every Christmas. So that's like oh, okay. four years of my life where I got an Assassin's Creed every Christmas. Nice. And that was my Christmas ritual. You know, I would open it, I would go upstairs, I'd play it until lunch was ready mm. or whatever it was. Yet, even back then, I remember thinking like, the gameplay never quite did it for me. Like the mechanics never fully clicked, but it still, like you said, it had that something. It still had that draw. It mm. requ- like it wanted you to play it. It wanted you to experience this world. It wanted to, you to experience those characters. And even though it wouldn't crack my top 10 list, 
like it's everyone who played Assassin's Creed 2, everyone who played Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, mm. just kind of I think has fond memories of it. I've never met someone who said, nah, it's crap. The thing is, like for me, it's it's perfectly part of that sort of like mid two thousands, like the emergence of fan theories as a wider discourse, the emergence of like broadband connections and the ability to bring more people together and for people to theorize on things and what's gonna happen. And like I said, I was there for Assassin's Creed from the very first teaser. Um that Wood Kid song that is on the trailer, like it's awesome. And um, I remember all that stuff. And it's like I was like I said, I was a huge Lost fan, I was a huge Cloverfield fan. Like I was that guy getting lost in like, oh my God, what's really going on type stuff. And so Assassin's Creed did the same thing where it was like, oh, we're, t- we're tapping into all these different historical images and we're placing pieces of Eden in them to try and like pretend that like it was always connected from the beginning and what's yeah. really going on with the history of humanity and all that kind of stuff. Hey. And Teenage Me lapped that up. You mentioned trailers there. Yeah. How good were <laughs> the Assassin's Creed trailers in that period? So stylish. They were so stylish. They were so grand. They, <laughs> I want to play that game. Yeah, almost, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the games that they promised in those trailers are so bloody sick with so much personality and so much style and of course a lot of that trickled down to the games themselves but that was when the franchise was just firing on all cylinders the thing is like you must play this game he is the game he's the trailers look how confident it is we know what this thing is that's the thing and I feel like it's because that original template for the IP was so 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 strong that they've been able to maintain it for this long and they have so many games in production and whatever but yeah for me they'll never recapture what it felt like to go through that original set of games I was going to say trilogy but it's more AC 1, 2, um, Brotherhood and Revelations. Revelations was weaker gameplay-wise, but nailed it on the story. Yeah. And then AC3, for me, was where it started to get a bit shaky, even though I think that game plays really well. Looks um, great as well, still. Yeah, totally. I, I bought the remaster and stuff, and it's like, yeah, it's just one of those things where AC used to mean so much to me, and I like, I used to just follow every single bit of the lore, the plot, and, and all that kind of stuff, um, and it was like one of those um, instances where like the actual creators cared less about it than, than the fans did, and, um, and it's, it was interesting watching that all play out, but what's your number 10? My number 10, and this is the only one that I want to add a caveat to and okay. preface it by saying people might think less of me when I say <laughs> what my number 10 is, but I hope I can give you an argument as to why it deserves a place on my personal yeah, top yeah, it's 10. Your personal not saying thing. it's the 10th best game of all time, but at number 10, I have Call of Duty Warzone, the original Call of Duty Warzone. Okay. And, and I'll I, tell I you blanked why. there on like, like is what it is this? World at War? Is it nope. Warzone? The, the, the Battle Royale. Right, got you. Free to play game that okay. dropped in March 2020. Now, Scott Taylor, I'm not sure what you were doing <laughs> in March 2020, but a big thing happened in the world. It did a, a bit. pandemic might have hit and trapped us all inside, <laughs> scared out of our wits for a little bit. And I was a huge fan of Call of Duty 2019. And this to me, felt like the next evolution of Call of Duty generally. Mm. Like, as you know, we've talked about it so many times, couldn't get into Battle Royale games for the life of me. I tried so many times playing PUBG, playing Fortnite, playing H1Z1, Mm. and I just could never get away with it. I even played Call of Duty um, Blackout, I think it was called, which was the Battle Royale mode for Call of Duty Black Ops 3, or maybe probably 4, actually. And I just could never get into that either, so I thought this this... Genre is dead to me. It's not for me. That's what I was saying in, in July, March 2020. I was like, it's not for me. Yeah, 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 absolutely, right? Uh, and now, here it is. I've got a Battle Royale game at number 10 on my list because Call of Duty Warzone gave me the immediacy of Call of Duty gameplay and polish and pristineness 
onto a framework, a framework, a multiplayer framework that I just find absolutely incredible. Mm. No match, no two matches play the same. You know, every single thing in those matches feels dynamic. There's an element of teamwork and tactical thinking required to get through a game of any battle royale. And when you add friends into the mix, it mm. just elevated the multiplayer experience. By this point, I was so sick of Deathmatch. I'd played Deathmatch for t 10 years of my life, hundreds and thousands of hours into regular Deathmatch and, you know, domination style modes. And I needed something else. I needed that mm. dynamic nature back. I needed that. I needed a sense of scale that I hadn't seen. And Call of Duty Warzone delivered it. But if I'm being honest, the reason it's on here is because of the pandemic. Mm. This, I have so many fond memories from that horrible period where I would get, I'd get quote unquote home from a day of work, which was literally moving around <laughs> my one bedroom flat from mm. my desk in the corner to my couch, which was less than a foot away, plonking myself down, getting a bit of you know, social time with my friends, playing Call of Duty Wars on every night for five or six hours, getting really invested in the meta, getting really invested in the progression. And it had the foundation to kind of back that up from a gameplay perspective. And it's just a shame that as of last week, I think, they announced that the original version of Call of Duty Warzone is getting taken off. Oh. And no one will be able to experience what I experienced no. again. Like, that has been removed. You can't play that version of it. The map isn't mm -hmm. there anymore. And I think what a weird thing to have this, my 10th best, most favorite game of all time, exist for three years and then disappear. It's I so think weird. The thing is that with the pandemic, like it's, it is it is weird to be like, oh, it's the best game because of the pandemic, but those unique circumstances did reinforce certain gameplay tropes or, or, or gameplay um, tendencies or whatever. Like I played Spiritfarer. That was my pandemic game for the first few months of the pandemic, um, which is like a mix of like a, like a sort of narratively infused farming game. And I just like lived on that for like two or three months. And that game has an extremely special place in my heart because of the way the story plays out yeah. um, that I thought was just like phenomenal. But I think that, yeah, if you're talking subjective rankings, then that can just bolster it. Like there was something about getting lost in something familiar that also felt new. Plus Warzone played better than like, anything else. So That's why it. not? And you know what? Honestly, if, if Warzone wasn't in here, I think another Call of Duty game would be in there mm. because Call of Duty's multiplayer, I think everyone has their multiplayer experience that they gravitate towards. Mm. That might be Halo, that might be Gears. It, it might, might be, be Halo, Josh. It might be, yeah, I'm sure it is, right? <laughs> it might be Counter-Strike, it might be Rainbow Six, whatever. Mm. To me, it was Call of Duty's multiplayer. Mm. Call of Duty 4 could have been on here. Modern Warfare 2 could have been on here. Modern Warfare 2019 could have been on here because it's kind of reflective of the multiplayer games that I lost myself with and Warzone just is up there because it's the game I put the most hours into. I mm. played over 500 hours of Warzone, which is the most I've played any game by far. <laughs> I remember your end of year card thing just being dominated by Call of Duty. Literally, man. And I was so, like I said, I so invested invested the mechanics that it managed to support you know, the amount of time we were putting into it and having that time and having nothing else to do. And mm. like, like I said, getting that bit of socialization from, from your friends, it was a, it was a horrible like recipe, but it was a <laughs> recipe. It was a tonic that was needed for that period. And, you know, like I won't take many good things away from the pandemic, but that is absolutely one I will take away from. Yeah, will man. Take away from it. That and uh, Animal Crossing as another one. Where I feel yeah. like a lot of people just dove on Animal Crossing for a bit. Um, my number nine is the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Oh! Getting the big boys on the go. Um, yeah, this is one of those those games that just, I mean, everyone's played Skyrim. I'm everyone's. not going to uh, recant what that is, but I just feel like, you know, it's uh, 12 years now since uh, Skyrim first came out. 
And it was just it just was that monumental A release. If you were there at the time, you know what it felt like. It was one of those games that I remember I was in the middle of doing my dissertation at the time for I think my masters um, at university and I like it was dropping, it was a big deal. We'd all seen the trailer, we'd all seen the trailers, played Oblivion and everything. And I was like, I can't touch it because if I do, I'll not finish my dissertation. I was like, <laughs> so I, but I ended up buying it anyway and putting it on my table. But I left it in the sort of wrapping, like the, the cellophane wrapping the stuff. And I stood it up, so it was looking at me. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, okay, I'll get to you in twelve thousand words time. And uh, and I didn't. I did it about halfway through. I was, like, I'm gonna have to do a little bit. I mean, it's it's been sat there all day. Yeah. And uh, so just playing that game, and I just it was one of those games that I it's one of my favorite energies in gaming when everybody's playing something. We had it last year with Elden Ring. And, uh, and it seldom happens these days because there's not that many titles that everybody's interested in um, that everybody then picks up on day one, whether that be a price reason or whatever it is because it's broken AF. But in Skyrim's case, even the bugs they did have didn't matter. It was back when Bethesda could get away with that stuff, yeah. with uh, the giants launching people across the map and everything. It was just charming. It was just fun because the vast majority worked. And it was just everyone sharing their builds, sharing what they found, sharing the different approaches they had to the story. Everybody largely ignoring the story, but I <laughs> love that stuff. I love all the stuff with the graybeards and um, all the stuff with um, Parthenax and everything. Um, and it was just a, just a cool game, just yeah. a really great game, kind of tied in with the beginning of Game of Thrones when a lot of that more sort of icy medieval aesthetic was doing the rounds, and I feel like Skyrim tapped into that quite nicely. Um, and it was just one of those things where it was, to me, um, again, kind of like with Assassin's Creed um, to Ubisoft, I wonder if um, Bethesda will ever get this again. Mm. Skyrim felt like a really big mainstream moment for them in a way that Oblivion and uh, Morrowind and previous never did. Um, and I don't think they'll get it with Elder Scrolls. Six. I just Ooh. think it was it was such a point in time. Like we're talking about where the open world genre was at in 2011, yeah. um, before the checkbox era of like Far Cry Three or whatever onwards. Um, and it just it was just such a perfectly made thing. So I've used the word perfect a lot, but I do view these games as like as exactly what they set out to be. Top ten of all time, man. Yeah. They've got to be perfect to get on this <laughs> list. Um, Skyrim isn't on mine, but it right. would have made it in my top twenty for all of the reasons mm. you just mentioned there mm. at the time. This, is the, this was the game I was most excited for in my life. I was a huge, huge fan of Oblivion. That mm. was the game that introduced me to RPGs in general and what an RP, open-world RPG could be. Mm-hmm. I loved Fallout 3 even more. So going into this, the hype was astronomical. And it's <laughs> managed to exceed my expectations, even though they were stratospheric in the first place. Mm-hmm. I just think the evolution that happened between even Fallout 3 and Skyrim was huge. Yeah, it was running on the same engine. Yeah, it still had that jankiness. But the way they tightened up their game design, for yeah. me was amazing. Even something as simple now is having each dungeon end with a treasure chest that like kind of wraps up your experience there, makes you realize, okay, this is finished, I can move mm. on. Like when you were doing that in Oblivion or even Fallout 3, you would maybe sometimes get lost, you mm-hmm. were kind of backtracking yourself, it was a bit confusing, it was like, well, have I done everything here? It just made everything a little bit neater while expanding the scope. Like the introduction of dragons at the time yes. felt so big and cool. Like and fighting them on the side of a mountain. Yeah, like, being yeah. able to fight them, like you said, um, for me, the kind of, the, the Norse-inspired setting, you know, the kind of, the horned um, the armor that you would have. Like, yeah, the, the, the Dovahkiin, the, um, the, the icier setting was, for me, preferable to what I got in Oblivion. Same. And it's kind of weird singing the, singing the praises of Skyrim after, like you said, you know, so many people <laughs> have played it. It's such this cultural touchstone. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think it was huge for a reason. It's oh, still dude. played today for a reason. And I kind of, I wish I'd played it more because I hammered it across 20... 
um, 11 and 12 and a bit of 13. Right. But I've not really gone back to it for a oh, decade, man I, man. I feel like I go back to it like every year. Like it's, right. I, I'm making, I've got it on every single system I own, including the Switch. Like it's just one of those games that I'll just go back to. It's like comfort food. Like I did, I, like you said, play the most of it in 2011 and finished the, the campaign. Um, but I love spending my time on it. I love making a new build or I love picking a, a new character um, and just wandering around for a bit. One small thing I want to shout out for this game is like even the elements of style that you get in the combat, like the finishing yeah. cams. Like I always remember playing when I first started playing up there's like an archer and there was like this one bit near the beginning it's like near um winterfell or whatever you call the first area winterhold it's something like that because the other ones in game of thrones yes some winter place and um there's a couple of towers with a bridge in the middle and there's an archer shooting you from the middle and i remember just taking just aiming skyward and just hoping for the best yeah and as i let go of the button it put the kill cam on and i saw the arrow fly all the way along and take the guy out and i was like this is absolutely phenomenal yes like, God, gaming is not gonna get better than this and um i love little inserts of like style in video games they've gone away as the Matrix, Matrix's influence on entertainment has like faded, but I love slow mo. I love 360 cams. I love like following a bullet or an arrow to a face. I love that stuff. You know, it was something they didn't really have to do because Fallout 3 obviously had vats, which gave you like a little bit mm. of slow motion and it would pull out and show you some brutal headshots <laughs> in like 360 slow mo. But like they could have just done similar to Oblivion again, but mm. in overhauling the actual combat and making it a little bit more weighty, not massively mm. weighty, but a little bit more weighty and giving it that style just made it feel like a proper big jump, a yeah. proper sequel. And honestly, man, I feel like the reason that I haven't gone back to it as much as you is because I I view that first playthrough as so perfect. Mm. I'll always remember discovering a new city for the first time because every time I went to a new city and did the quests there, it was like a big milestone in my playthrough. I wouldn't see a new one for like 10 or 15 hours mm. and then I'd say, okay, I've explored this area. I'm ready to move on and progress So much in each one as well. And there's so much in each one. Each one looks different. Like they have their own personality, their own distinct sense of place and mm. getting to them felt like such a big thing that I almost I just can't replicate it. It's, it's <laughs> one of the few games on my list that if I could wipe my brain and play it again I would because I'll see I for me it's back. like I definitely back that and the first playthrough was the most like individually iconic or whatever you want to call it the one that stayed with me the most but um because of that it's like going back in and be like oh my god they how did they make this much stuff how does everything feel handcrafted how is there this much dialogue in it um, and these these many different ways to play it and different ways that all the NPCs bounce off you and everything else like there's that, that thing is a miracle like yeah. especially now when the amount of games that come out that are broken now and then like to me Bethesda have never followed up on that feeling since 2011 for me personally um, it's it's all the more impressive if you do go back to it now um, your number 9 sir my number 9 is Disco Elysium oh what a beautiful pick. Oh, a game, another game, funnily enough, that I had huge expectations for. Obviously, it dropped on PC first. We mm. had to wait a little while to get it on PlayStation, and I'd heard everyone talking about this is, you know, one of the best written games ever. It's yeah. one of the best RPGs you'll ever play. But while I was expecting to love the writing, that kind of isometric um, RPG style has never really done it for me. So mm. I, there was no guarantee that I would like this game from a mechanical standpoint, especially mm -hmm. when it's going to be like 30, 40, maybe even 50 hours of this isometric kind of adventure um, game mm -hmm. style gameplay. But I did, and it's great <laughs> because this has one of the best worlds and one of the best, I think, main characters of all time yeah, in yeah. Harry Dubois. Easily. Who, which is impressive because your Harry will be different from my Harry. There are so many different Oh, it was avenues, so different. It was hilarious. So different. <laughs> so many different ways you can customize this nightmare of a character um, <laughs> by 
indulging in the different, um, how would you even describe them as, emotions going on within him. So if you don't know what Disco Elysium is, you play as this drunken nightmare cop who wakes up hungover, has no idea who he even is, has no idea what his case is. How he even thinks. How he even thinks, and he has to solve a murder that's happening in this town. But... The way the game handles its role-playing decisions is that it has a bunch of different impulses in Harry's brain that are vying to kind of control him. So you have, you know, you have, you have anger, you have guilt, you have all of these other warring mm. emotions. And every time you have to make a decision, all of these um, different voices in Harry's, he- Harry's head will pop up and try to sway you to their side. <laughs> and each one is piss funny. Each one is so tightly written that no matter how you construct your character, you're always going to have a good time. Mm. And the way that the narrative branches off from that is uh, fascinating. You can do different parts of the game in completely different orders. You can meet characters. You can have relationships with characters that other people might not have because mm. you've made a wrong decision or you've chosen poorly. And it's just one of those games that's so full of personality, so funny, while still having this rich and complex law and history and story to it mm-hmm. that, you know, you could you could play the game forever and probably still find new things and new interpretations and whatnot. That was one of those games that, like, kind of like Skyrim, where it's just like the, if you think of a game as, like, the design side of it is like a matrix, like the amount of different components, different points that all talk to each other and everything else. Disco Elysium was, like, endlessly mind-blowing in terms of how many different things it was tracking. And I don't even know how many endings it has, and I kind of don't want to know because it feels, my ending felt completely unique to me. Yeah. Um, and I know that there are, like, massively different ones in terms of how much evidence you find. And there's all sorts of weird little side uh, side quests that you can sort of tap into or side dialogue that you can tap into that also then comes back around at the end where I was like, oh, they're paying that off and they're paying that off and they're paying that off. Um, but yeah, it is one of those games that is almost entirely dialogue-driven minus tiny little bits of like gameplay stuff that you do in terms of picking up different uh, bits of evidence and stuff. But it's just so impressive. Yeah. It just is so rawly impressive. Like You could give it to anyone, and even from the opening few scenes, yes. um, you might die, your character might die reaching for the, the light bulb to get his <laughs> pants off the top of the light because of the night that he's had before. Um, I die trying to sit down at one point yeah. um, because the chair was uncomfortable and my, um, it wasn't even really health, but his disposition thing was so low anyway that the chair just like finished him off he had like a heart attack or something so um all that stuff i just think is like phenomenal but like you said it has this like through line of um this like murder mystery thing that has a quite a dark tone to it but it is really it's like really darkly funny it is Um, it's very uniquely written like that so darkly funny like so satirical Mm. so just like so full of charm and like you said even the core story that it's telling is compelling enough on its own Mm. honestly even if there wasn't such a heavy emphasis on decision-making. I think if you still told a story, this story with these characters mm. in this world, um, in this mood, it would still be a contender for one of my favorite oh, yeah. games ever made because it has such a sense of place. And Harry, as a character, like I mentioned, has so many layers to them and uncovering his history is tragic and it can mm. be heartbreaking while also being funny. Um, your bloody police partner who we haven't mentioned Kim is also one of the best characters ever made and just all of the interactions going on it's it taps into something really human I Mm. think and there's a lot of pathos pathos within it and I think that you know 
Uh, I could talk about this game. Well, years, the thing is, like, one thing that it made me think of as we're talking about it now, and it is threaded in the game anyway, it's the like the beginning of um, Fahrenheit or Indigo Prophecy, where it's like that game, uh, one of David Cage's early games, just opens with your character, uh, Lucas Kane, I think he's called, um, finding a body in a bathroom. And like you, you know as the audience that you've murdered him, but then it's completely up to you what you do. It's like, do you hide the body? Do you tell someone about it? There's a cop in the diner. Do you try and tell them? Do you make a, an exit out the back door? Um, it's up to you. And I love that whole, the game, the game that game loses all that as it plays out but disco is quite similar it's like how do you want to approach this case who do you yeah. want to talk to who actually seems like a reliable witness and um, and how do you think how do you as an individual think and the game tracks all that stuff um to the point where I, it was calling me out for being like a dirty centrist because i was <laughs> trying to make harmony between different people and it was like no no, no. and uh, i love that it works on that sort of black mirror level like what gta used to do in terms of like well how are you approaching these missions or how many pedestrians are you killing or whatever right and yeah. it, it has that undercurrent of like the game is also reading you as you sort of like flesh out who Harry was or whatever you fix all the um, amnesiac stuff that's totally right man and I feel like with that it can tell you a lot about yourself if you do kind of follow what you would do in that situation mm. or an approximation of that but it also gives it such role playing potential for multiple playthroughs mm. where you can go through and if you wanted to be be this like a horrible fascist who like <laughs> makes everything worse and is just an absolute I just try to be nice. train wreck <laughs> I'm not saying you did that no, no, way, but just, uh, yeah. it was funny because like that was what became contrasted with realizing how other people were playing it I was like I'm just trying to get on with everybody <laughs> can someone help me solve this murder I just I'm literally being the, the the middle centrist guy, and uh, and I love that the game just sort of calls you out and says, "No, pick a side. You need yeah. to convict. You need to find a way through this with some conviction." Literally, otherwise, yeah, yeah, you might try to play both sides, and both sides are like, "No," and then you <laughs> you're left trying to figure out this case without any leads or mm. any relationships or whatever. But yeah, man, like I just have so many memorable moments of trying to get through those missions because every kind of main action you do is. Um, informed by a dice roll mm. you can get that percentage on your side by investing in certain skills but that doesn't give you like a guaranteed uh, path throughout the entire game so you might have a 98% chance to do something and uh oh this <laughs> is when the 2% um, comes up and you fail it and I liked committing to those actions and mm. not reloading saves and just kind of accepting that as part of the fun because like I said keep saying Harry is a nightmare <laughs> he will get things wrong and it's is fun to react to negative situations and bad outcomes as it is to get through the game in a in a perfect way. And I think play as well. The game and- complete the game. You know? Yeah, so I think as well, it's like, it's such a good detective game as well that like this is a really satisfying story. Like, there are so many components to it. You are unraveling it yourself, but there are main beats to uncover. So I think there is like a certain level of um, satisfaction you're going to get anyway. It's not like there's too much choice where you can just miss everything. Um, I Yeah, there was a whole sort of bit in the middle chunk of that game, majority of the middle of that game, where everything was just clicking and I couldn't wait to talk to the next character to uncover the next thing. And it was also one of those things that so few games get right that are dialogue driven, where you can your character lets you ask the thing that you want to ask as the audience they're not deliberately obfuscating information like it feels yeah. like you can chase things down um, which I just like massively loved um, my number 8 is God of War 2018 Whoa. A, another meaty boy um, just certain titles that over the years just escalated like were just worth more um, than all their separate parts combined there was something about God of War that just represented a maturation of gaming represented a maturation of Sony and Santa Monica and even Cory Barlog who was there from the beginning of God of War went back when it was David Jaffe and everything. 
And well, you don't go to war too anyway. And I just thought that, like, I love the whole idea. I love the whole idea of maturing legacy characters and, like, where are they at now and not trying to do things that tap back into, like, not, not pretending they can still do everything the way that they could because as we age, we can't. And yeah. you need to mature. You need to learn. You need to grow as a person. And, like, I just love that they were encapsulating that. And it was like we got um, God of War and Uncharted 4 both dealt with the idea of, like, what's Nathan Drake's retirement like? Um, can he get back out there and do it again? What's his, what, what you know, where does that take him? Um, and just steer into that, you know, can he get a family and things like that? And then God of War uh, with Kratos making his sort of anger problems like a, a direct, like, rage meter and he's sort of, like, freaking out around Atreus. He needs to be a better and actually learn to be a father. And does he know himself if he's worth love? I think all that stuff is just really phenomenal, fertile territory um, that I absolutely love. And so it was just one of those things where, um, again, it was one of those games that every single bit of it, the run-up to it, the, the, the release of it, um, the original trailer, the reveal where he steps out the shadow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Like, yeah. one of the best reveals Sony's ever done. Um, and it just followed through perfectly into the game. Like, I just absolutely demolished this game and loved every single second of what they did with his character. So, like, love my time with Ragnarok as well, but the 2018 one is just leagues above because of what it represented. I think a lot of people would have this in their top tens. Bosh. It's not on mine because I prefer Ragnarok, and that's also not in the top 10. Uh But uh, I love it for everything. I do love the game for everything that you just referred to there. Uh It's the game that got me into God of War, even without having the history with that character. Like you said, that trailer when he emerges from the shadows, it landed with such a thud. A thud in a good way. (laughs) A thud in a good way. The crowd does a massive shout. Yeah, yeah. because he's a a heavy guy. He's a strong guy. So he landed and made a crater around him. He's a meaty man. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, for me, God of War 2018 is like the blueprint of how to reinvent a character and a franchise, you know? I know a lot of people might not necessarily love the way the game plays compared to the originals, but as a person... And from a thematic story standpoint, it has so much going on in there. And <laughs> what a cool way to reckon, not only with a character's past, but a franchise's past as well, and mm-hmm. what that meant in a gaming space alongside what that character meant in his own in-narrative space. Uh, it's juggling a lot. It c- could have easily not worked, mm. especially with some of the stuff they were trying in terms of the one-tier camera that was apparently an absolute nightmare to get right. <laughs> but they kind of like pulled off the impossible. And that I... to me is like, God of War 2018 is the start for better or worse, maybe, of modern Sony. That's when they really hit a gear, I think. Horizon for, Horizon Zero Dawn was great, but... I would me. say Last of Us is, because God of War is doing The Last of Us. Uh, I guess... It's uh, all that over-shoulder with a companion. It, it's all that kind of stuff. I'll give you that, but it, there's like, what, five years between God of War and Last of Us? And mm. Last of Us, obviously, was incredibly instrumental, but I mean, in terms of when they hit the ground running, we had a few false starts in between there, mm. like the Order 1886, you know, <laughs> the Second Son, and, like, God of War, to me, was like, okay, no, this is actually the blueprint. Oh, totally. We are looking at The Last of Us, and, okay, that's gonna be everything we do from now yeah, on. Yeah, because I guess, like, God, that's actually funny, because, yeah, uh, God of War 2018 was in development for five years, so I right, wonder if right. they literally were like, this has to be our future, because Last of Us was received so well, and it was Naughty Dog. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it just makes hiring all in one place so easy because you just get unparalleled access to job seekers. Plus, listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash WCG. Just go to Indeed.com slash WCG right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash WCG. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. But um, but yeah, it's, it's just one of those things where like I like my golden rule is always what were they trying to do? What did they nail? And they perfectly matured this character and kind of reframed the old games, which is another thing that I love about Uncharted 4. I love the idea of um, in that game's case, that franchise's case, reframing the original titles to reinforce how human Drake is so that it makes every single leap that you do, every single set piece, even more unbelievable that he emerged unscathed. Um, and then in God of War's case, it's just sort of taking all the wanton violence of the 2000s and how the industry used to be and we used to love like Carmageddon and Manhunt and all these ridiculous over-the-top games, which I still love. Yeah. Um, but the idea of addressing that and just being like, okay, if this person actually had been through all this, yeah. what would they be like? What would their approach to family life or imparting wisdom? What would that be like? And then steering right into it and fleshing it all out. And I mean, like, what an era we live in where we have all of these great games about mm. like bad dads and dads <laughs> trying to be better. Like, it's it's maybe a, a narrative point that has been done a little bit too much, perhaps, over the past few years, but I do think it's still an important point since God of War 2018 came out, mm. and that is, like, you know, how to be a father, like, how to avoid a lot of those masculine pitfalls that s- some people, like Kratos, definitely get themselves in. Right. How do you connect with this child, and how do you make him not repeat your same mistakes if you can't even talk to the guy, if you mm. can't even, like, acknowledge him as your own or whatever? And, like, that obviously goes into... God of War Ragnarok as well, but it, it starts here and it's so fur island, it's so emotional. That whole thing that they do, which I think is genius, and there wasn't anything in Ragnarok that got this high uh, in terms of a, a narrative device, thematic device, of making Atreus, when he realizes he's a god and he kills um, Magnus and Modi, I think it's uh, Troy Baker and Northern North, the two, the two like brothers, the two gods, and then Atreus realizes he has god powers and he becomes this like petulant a-hole and Kratos is the one trying to calm him down and trying to get through to him. I love that as such a reflection on exactly what Kratos was like in the original games. If you go back to those original titles, it's so overlooked how much of a just giant dick Kratos is, especially in God of War 2. 
Um, and well, especially in God of War three, three yeah. and uh, it's, I was just thinking at the beginning of two where he's just like, no, like Athena, I've got these powers and whatever. And um, but yeah, I just I love that as just sort of like, how do you make this character reckon with the way, like to realize how far he's come, and for the audience to realize how far he's come, um, and then for him to have to um, be better. The whole point of that game, the message towards the end where he just says, you must be better, um, and it's almost a, a message to the entire industry. The idea of like portrayals of violence in video games, or if we're going to do violent stuff, it has to be for something, it has to be better. And I just loved all that stuff. It was just one of those things that resonated with me as someone who grew up with all of that stuff from the yeah. beginning all the way through. Um, your number eight, sir. Um, let me check. I was so check caught the up in the big old list. God of War chat that I completely <laughs> forgot. My number eight is Mass Effect 1. And oh, that's such a good show. I had no idea whether Mass Effect 2 or Mass Effect 1 was going to get onto my top 10 list, but it turns out I love Mass Effect mm. 1, and we've mentioned this before, if you want to go back and listen to the podcast that we did when the remastered trilogy came mm. out, but Mass Effect, the original, had such a sense of wonder to mm-hmm. it, you know what I mean? Like, you were given this created character called Commander Shepard, <laughs> and you were essentially set free on this brand new original sci-fi universe, and what a joy it was to explore that in 2007, being able to travel to different planets, meet a bunch of different alien races, indulge in the law. Like, Mm -hmm. I had never seen anything like that before. And in the gaming space, I've never seen anything like that since, where a game franchise comes out with such a confident new world Mm. um, for you to just get lost in. Obviously, it has its inspirations with a bunch of other sci-fi bits of media, but um, I I just don't think I'll ever see that again in the AAA space, man. When the uh, Legacy Edition came out, we all said to each other, like, this is such a reminder of what this used to be and how nothing else is like that. Like, I remember before Mass Effect 1 came out, just being excited to have conversations because the dialogue tree is still pretty unmatched. Like, in terms of, I mean, obviously there's a weird element of, like, precognition to it because you are dialing in what your character's gonna say before someone's finished their sentence but it just kind of worked the timing of it worked there was enough you got the idea for the sentiment of the conversation so you could reply properly um, and it just kind of replicated an actual conversation which like was mind blowing for 2007 yeah, and man. like has aged perfectly I mean like, that whole debate or the whole conversation around which is the best Mass Effect and it tends to come down to 1v2 going through the Legacy Edition um, or the Legend Edition whatever the hell they call it um, I way preferred Last of Us Mast of Us The Mast of Us I way preferred Mass Effect 1 um, just the tone of it it's way more open ended it's way more Star Trek it's way more like journeying between all these different planets and like just it just felt grander and it's like you can pick your um, I just like the, the framing of that story more I think at yeah. the time I preferred to but going back through them one is just this like beautiful open ended thing this is the one that I'll flip flop on so much because mm. I love the characters in 2 I like the tighter focus of 2 and I think it the way it incorporates your decisions at, in the final mission mm. is has more RPG-ness than I think uh, Mass Effect 1. But Mass Effect 1's core framing of there is this alien threat out there and you need to figure out what the hell's going Mm. on with it is so memorable. And when you have that conversation with Sovereign towards the end and you understand what the Reapers are, no video game villain has felt more threatening than Sovereign in that right. moment to me. Like, we are coming. We are going to devour your entire galaxy, <laughs> and there is nothing you can do about it. The sense of, like, hopelessness, the sense of impending doom that you got with that. Again, mm-hmm. give it what you said there, that sense of grandeur, that sense of scale, which is so, um, you know, unique to a lot of sci-fi properties. And 
having that as your lead-in to the next game after you have the attack on the Citadel and you mm. take the Reaper out and you're going up against Saren, who to this day is still an all-timer game and villain. Awesome. Um, there's so much going on in that game, and it's I think it's impressive that, to me, it could do what Bethesda never could, and that was give you... Not an open-world RPG in this case, but an RPG where your choices matter. It still felt open as well. It still felt open. Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You still got like, whole worlds to explore. You mm. got a bunch of different endings. But it gave you a main story that was just as compelling as the side stuff, and it managed to weave them together in an almost mm. perfect way, I thought. And, uh, yeah, I don't think there'll ever be a Mass Effect again. E- uh, even Mass Effect 4 won't be able to replicate <laughs> what Mass Effect 1 brought to the table. It's because like- Sorry, just one no, no. more thing. Just It seems so unconcerned with trends from the time as well. Mm. Again, I love Mass Effect 2, but you can see where that was inspired by other games. The color scheme completely changes to be yep. more evocative of games at the time. The cover system is you know, straight out of Gears of War. It's trying to ape that. Mass Effect 1 doesn't even seem concerned with what other people are doing. It's just saying, this is what we want to be. And it's kind of a shame that we never got another one of those. I wonder if, uh, this is just a, a, a sentiment, a statement that my brain served up. I wonder if Mass Effect 1 is the, was the last great Bioware game oh, in terms of the core mentality that Bioware made. Because yeah. I love Mass Effect 2, but you could argue that, like you said, it was the Gears influence, the thing that killed Dead Space 3, um, chasing trends. Yeah, was Mass Effect 1 the last time Bioware went from beginning to end entirely their own vision maybe it it's, was just uh it's curious it was the last one before they got bought by ea right okay, yeah, so man. it could be mass effect 2 started off the ea period the EA and dragon age 2 which good <laughs> game but not as um, again not as ambitious is the original more scaled down more tightly focused mm-hmm. and while that did work for mass effect didn't quite work uh for dragon age so yeah i will think about mass effect all the time Same. i've been thinking about it on and off since 2007 and i was so pleased when the remastered edition came out, that it held up and stood yeah, the man. test of time and was still as original and interesting as it always was. I mean, there's a few games on this list that might not stand mm. the test of time, but that is one. Honestly, like the amount of and um, like info that's in the codex stuff. I was just thinking of like the different sort of footprints that uh, Mass Effect has. The audio footprint is one of them. I always think of the the music that's on in the menus, the music that's on when you're on the galaxy map. Like yes. it's just it, it. Final Fantasy, as I'm going through 16 at the minute, is such a reminder of how important audio is and a unique audio footprint for a video game and not just to have some sort of um you know more generic string section for a triple a game or whatever it is um it's just like mass effect had such an identifiable audible feel yeah and you could you could play a, just a couple of sound effects over the beginning of one of those pieces of music and you would be you would instantly remember the entire trilogy or the first couple of games or whatever That's um, it, man. Like, it was a magical time the music just being able to walk around the normandy ship talk mm. to your uh, shipmates talk to everyone apart from that bad space racist Ashley you know keep, <laughs> keep away from her but then fall in love with Garrus fall in love with Rex um, save Rex save Rex the people who let Rex, Rex die I don't know what you're please doing please don't let Rex <laughs> die if you plan on playing the full trilogy um, and then you know, even appreciating other characters the older I get, like, I actually really like Kid now. So sorry for slagging you off for no. 10 years. I, I, I deeply apologize. I he let gets him really die. Good. Oh, he gets really good in Mass Effect 3. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, like, you know, I think of video games and I think of Shepard opening the galaxy map on the Normandy. Yes, no, same. I was just thinking of the yeah, the fact that Caden got so good is uh, at the time it was just, oh, F Caden. That was one of the original like Mass Effect memes or whatever. Um, my number seven is Halo 2, one of the greatest games of all time. Halo 2, I... Two. 
fully expected you to have Halo 3 on this list. 2 meant more to me. 2 was the one that was the first one that I went online. It was the first Xbox Live game. Like, Halo 1 was online on PC. Yeah. But at the time, like, you know, like, Halo on consoles hadn't been taken online before. So Halo 2 was my introduction to online Halo deathmatches and just everything. Everything right. that you think of when people talk about online Halo, that was Halo 2. Um, I also love the story. Like, obviously, a lot of people didn't like the way that it ended. I never cared. I was completely fine with that. I didn't expect that to be the end of everything. I always expected it to be a trilogy, at least. And so the whole finishing this fight thing only psyched me up. I thought that was completely fine. I yeah. love playing as the Arbiter. I love all the stuff with um, Chief and the Arbiter. And uh, and again, Audible Footprints, like Halo's music, Halo 2, having that Steve Vai version of the Molnir mix. And the main theme, when that kicks in and you have the rocket launcher and you take down the Scarab, Gaming really gets better than that. Yeah. Like, just that whole sequence where you're just running alongside this giant tank in the middle of a city. I think it's in the middle of New Mombasa. um, Just firing rockets at all the different grunts and the elites that are on that scarab um, as one of the greatest pieces of music ever made plays in the background. Halo 3 could never. Having been... That's not a sentence. (laughs) Having um, played a lot of Final Fantasy 16 now and really appreciating the audio footprint of that game and the music that um, populates not just the big fights but the more tranquil moments and having just talked about Mass Effect now, Mm. how good of a time was like the mid-2000s for sci-fi games especially in these scores that just went so perfectly together to the point where, like you mentioned there, if you hear the Halo theme now, like people will be brought down memory lane. (laughs) They'll be popping big if that drops on a trailer. Uh It just, like... Like I just said there, when I think of gaming, I think of Shepard on the Normandy with a galaxy map. If I say what is gaming to you to someone else, they'll think of like the Halo 3 reveal trailer. They'll think of that music yeah. coming in, you know? The thing is that whole period, I mean, it's not taken away from Halo 3. Like I joked before the Halo 3 could never, only because that <laughs> moment in Halo 2 was such a big thing, but 3 was monumental as well. Like the, yeah. the, 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 that whole trailer, the E3 reveal trailer from 2007, I think it was, or maybe 2006, um, with Cortana walking out the smoke is always my favorite trailer for, from anything. Um, like I am splitting hairs between 2 and 3, but if I talk about what meant so much to me, I just always remember getting home with the steelbook edition of Halo 2, oh, sitting down first level, and when all the grunts are coming in, obviously in the magazines and everything, we'd read that you can dual wield, and so picking up two SMGs at the same time, and just standing with double SMGs, waiting for the door to open, yeah. as the music kicked in, rattling through all of them, it doesn't get better than that, man. Like, three was Halo 3 was, like, monumental, it was phenomenal, yeah. but 2 was such an escalation. I'll forever be gutted that I never got to experience Halo multiplayer in its prime. Right. In our house, didn't get internet didn't get broadband until 2008 i think so well late man so by that point call of duty 4 had already been out a Mm. year and that was my entrance into online gaming and to me like not like not like it was a back step or anything but no it's still great it's just very different that's it the progression based gameplay of call of duty 4 was felt so different to the more arcadey open-ended fun of the halo series Mm. that because i was entrenched in one side like I can never appreciate Halo for what it was, and I'm always so sad that people always talk about these memories of Halo 2 in particular and how much those maps meant to them, how much getting home from school and jumping online meant to them. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll never have that, and I feel robbed of it. Honestly, like, yeah, the whole Halo 2's online, like, it was just, like, going on Blood Gulch, like, making those, like, every, every, and that's the thing. You talk about like moments in time, everyone talked on Xbox Live back then. Obviously, there was some bad stuff in there, but honestly, the majority was great. Like, the majority was like coordinating attacks and like, you know, describing where to go next and like just like just hanging out. People just, oh, where are you from? Okay, cool. I'm from here. Like, 
I don't know, a bunch of teenagers online, there's going to be some gross stuff, but it just, for most of it, it was so awesome. It was just so solid and communal. Um, and it just, that, those original days of Xbox Live, um, you know, and you could play like Spinner Cell Pandora tomorrow online, where you could like yes. talk to the person if you get them in a head hold or whatever. It was all those kind of things. And so, yeah, when I think about my Halo memories, it, it doesn't get better than Halo 2 personally. Um, that bar or that needle was pinned for quite some time and three years up there, yeah. but it's not 2. 2 was, was life-changing. Like I'll, 2 was unbelievable. I always knew you loved to, but I, yeah. I am actually a little bit surprised by this. I really thought it's just because of how much. And the thing is, as well, you talk about the reveal. Like, yeah. they did that trailer that um, it was the behind closed doors E3 one, and then they put it out. I think it was on video. Mm. They put out this collectible, maybe it was on a disc or something, but they put out this version of the Halo 2 reveal trailer that they did use at E3 in like 2000 three or whatever it was, um, set to Huberstank to the reason. <laughs> and uh, that combination of Huberstank with um, Halo, it, like I said, it, it rarely gets better. Like it was just that whole reveal. And just like the fact that Chief can go on and jump on the vehicles. You've got all these yeah. different like animations and stuff. Nah, man, Halo 2. You know what? You know what's great about Halo 2? Everything. Is, is when you think about it and you look online from the air, uh, the kind of halo fever that everyone was experiencing at the time. Mm. And you see people like lined up with their Master Chief things to go <laughs> and buy Halo 2. Obviously, Halo 3 was huge in that regard as well. But mm. that period of people walking out with Xbox, Xbox has been like, I have Halo oh, 2. Dude. I'm going home to play this right now. Honestly, like the more I think about it, and I, I was going to do a whole video on this because I, I can't believe how much Microsoft slash Xbox effed it. Like, just how much, I mean, how much momentum was behind Halo for those first few games. And Bungie even brought it back with Reach. Like, it was like a little spin-off game, and that was received incredibly well. Um, and then just to, like, give it to the different team altogether, to change the story altogether, to just continually mess it up. And then have four years or five years where the Master Chief Collection didn't even work. Yeah. Like, just unbelievable. Like, really, really unbelievable, considering how perf like perfect those original games were. Um, that's a lot of Halo. What's your number seven? My number seven is, it is Silent Halo. Hill 2. Aha! I was waiting. I was going to be like, is it going to be Silent Hill 3? <laughs> Silent Hill 1 mean more to him? I don't know. Silent Hill 1 means a lot to me. That mm. was definitely a contender. That was one of the first video games I ever experienced. I will never forget my dad playing <laughs> Silent Hill 1 on a stormy night when I was way too young to experience right. it and being terrified <laughs> at the opening where you're in the diner in the winged demon crashes oh, through the window. Oh, when you hear it on the radio, static first. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely terrifying, man. <laughs> so that... Oh, I feel that by myself as a kid because I got the demo disc nice. and it was like when you're a kid you're just playing through everything there's yeah. no age gating on those demos so I was like yeah playing that myself terrified when that <laughs> thing breaks through the window yeah. so when I finally got around to playing it myself years later when I was in university and picked up a PlayStation 1 mm. it was like unfinished business I went back to that game completed <laughs> it and had a great time doing it but around the same time because I enjoyed it so much I thought well I might as well get a PlayStation 2 and play Silent Hill 2 and 3 and I'd heard so much about Silent Hill 2 mm. obviously a lot of people saying it's not only one of the best horror games of all time but one of the best games of all time period so it's another one where I had, I had high expectations I was coming in during the PlayStation 4 era playing a PlayStation 2 game mm -hmm. And it still hit. This yes. is not a nostalgia thing for me. This is like if I play, if you play Silent Hill two now, I think you'll still two have totally the time, holds up. Yeah, yeah, have the time that I had because I played it well after the fact as well. I just think its sense of place and atmosphere, which we've talked a lot about on this list so far, is impeccable. There's something about those gray PlayStation two graphics mm. that works so well for horror. Yeah, you know what I mean. That kind of emptiness, the sterility of these locations, the fact that the fog mm. 
can only um, allow you to see so far ahead of you, probably mm-hmm. because the machine couldn't render <laughs> any further. I think than at that, that point they were doing it more artistically, like it yeah. was a happy accident with one. But then in two, it felt like, especially when you were near the pier, you can see the um, like the railing sort of like disappear down into the distance yeah. kind of thing. And talk about like like that opening when what a good framing device for a game mm. where you play as a character who's got a letter from their dead wife somehow, telling them to go to this spooky mm. town. What a great introduction. The walk into Silent Hill itself, so moody. Um, figuring out what's going on in Silent Hill takes its time to build, but creates such a strong, unnerving atmosphere. And I'll never forget one of the scares that the game gave me early on where you're exploring this apartment block. Mm-hmm. And there's no music stinger to announce that a monster has entered the room. <laughs> Just because the game sometimes works from static camera angles, it's viewing your camera face on, Who's in? Who, and it has the um, doorway just behind him. Right. And I just saw this monster walk across <laughs> the doorframe. And I remember being so unnerved, thinking it was so effective that a game that was old at that point mm. had such this um, had such an ability to scare me. Still, honestly, it had we, that patience. We talk about, uh, or we're two of the biggest defenders of like isometric horror or, or, or um, fixed camera angle horror. Like it's, it, you can frame scenes in a specific way. I think there is like an art to that stuff. There is, and like Silent Hill Two is one of the masters of it. Yeah, because it just like it just it locks you into a perspective. Mm. It makes you see what the game wants you to see, and oftentimes you don't want to see that because you know it's got something <laughs> scary literally waiting around the corner for you. But yeah. Again, another game with a great audio footprint, the squelches, the industrial noises that are happening while you explore this area. I love that there's barely any combat in the game. Yeah. Obviously, there is a little bit. You can whack these monsters to death. I do think you find a gun at some point, Mm -hmm. but for most of my experience, I I was running around them. I was trying to avoid them. I wasn't engaging Mm. in it in that way uh, because it's all about the world. It's all about the characters and the way the story goes with a now well-known and iconic plot twist. It's just such a great self-contained story. And I kind of, I find it a bit of a shame as much as I love one and three Mm. that they didn't follow the blueprint of two because three is a direct sequel to one and it kind of builds this law. Whereas Mm. two is eternal and two is iconic because it is self-contained. You can give it to anyone. You don't need one to explain it. You can just, it exists on its own terms and I'm really scared Blueber team are going to mess it up. I was just going to say, I, was like, I think all of this, I think, is why they've isolated two. Obviously, it is by far the most popular one, but then at the same time, yeah, like, it is being given... To, I mean, even the little teaser trailer, like, obviously, immediately the facial animation's being uh, made fun of and stuff. So whether they can come close to replicating that feel, I don't think so, because I think a lot of that feel is because of the fact that it was made at a certain time. It's very encapsulative of where technology was at at the time, and yep. then it's very, like, like, Eastern horror in that style is just so effective. There was yes. such a movement at the time with the grudge and the ring and it's like if it kind of it's in that bracket for me like it's sort of got that it's doing more with less absolutely yeah it's it is doing more with less it doesn't need so much to scare you mm. and just like the subtle offness of everyone you interact with even unintentional things i assume like the voice acting and how they <laughs> probably could have needed a second or third take for some of those line deliveries <laughs> works to like embody that surreal surreality of Silent Hill as a place and mm. that kind of nightmare feeling of not knowing if what you're seeing is real. Mm-hmm. Is it all in the character's head? What's going on? Just 
a, a game I could talk about forever, and I'm so pleased, not to brag, that I have the original PS2 copy, the director's Shout. cut of the game, because... That gets price gouged now. If you right. want to buy Silent Hill 1 on the PlayStation 1, it's like 70 to 90 pounds, and it's about <sighs> 50 for Silent Hill 2, at least in the UK. It's crazy. I tell you what, a shout-out to the satisfying clicks of using a PlayStation 2 case. Yes. Like either the, the little slit that was on the edge of the case when you open it or the little push-button thing that not all of them had. No. Um, some of them had the one that would like depress a lot more. I miss PlayStation 2 boxes. Me too, have man. so many of them. Get yourself a PlayStation 2. I can't believe you don't own one. <sighs> I, well, I've still got my original one, but it'll be buried in the garage somewhere right. but I've got the one from 2001 or whatever from after 2000 from back in the day um, my number six and the last one for this podcast this week is Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild nice coming in at number six um, many Zeldas could have taken this thing's position um, I've got such a soft spot for the original one and I love Ocarina of Time um, as well but I th- and Link Between Worlds and Link to the Past there's a lot of them <laughs> there's a lot of them in there um, but if I'm going with the one that I was just like quite blown away by but in a really beautiful way it is Breath of the Wild there's such a unique feeling to going through that game and we talked about it loads we brought up Breath of the Wild quite a lot especially when we talked about Tears of the Kingdom um, but I just feel like Breath of the Wild is just such a serene sublime experience just play as Link go vanquish the like evil from the land if you think you can go straight to the final boss immediately you can if you want more time to um, explore and figure out more abilities that Link actually has that you don't realize as the player. Um, I just love that metatextual thing of becoming the hero or remembering how to be the hero. And I feel like that is just a really great way of doing a Legend of Zelda. I also love the approach to puzzles. A lot of people didn't like getting rid of the dungeons and then having the shrines instead. I'm a huge fan of that. I like having the bite-sized approach to it because it fit perfectly with the Switch. And so obviously when it tied into uh, when that console launched in 2017, just doing a a few puzzle shrines on the way to work or on the way back or sitting on the toilet or whatever. (laughs) I like that whole thing and it's like you can you could spend 30 hours in it or 30 minutes or whatever and get nice little morsels of stuff I personally think it's head and shoulders above Tears of the Kingdom but I get why people don't um, obviously Tears of the Kingdom builds on it quite a lot but if I'm talking about the feeling of something when I first played through it Breath of the Wild is near unmatched we have been talking about Breath of the Wild lots over the past few weeks because we've been talking about Tears of the Kingdom in the, Horrible. Don't, don't tell me it was six Horrible. years ago. I don't need to know that. In <laughs> um, like we keep mentioning, and like you mentioned there, like I don't think you'll have another Breath of the Wild like mm. it. It was such a moment in time. It was so new. It was so fresh. It completely transformed how we approached open world games and certainly how we approached Zelda games. And while it's not another one that's not on my list but would be in my top 20, mm. like that is one of the happiest I've ever been. <laughs> I remember being... Um, I've told this story before, but just being back in my parents' house after the first time I'd been away from them for like a long period of time, mm. like a full year not seeing them, playing Breath of the Wild on a handheld, which was so unlike me at the time, uh. on their couch while life was happening around me, six or seven hour stints a day, getting lost in Hyrule into this new world that I wasn't familiar with because I had no idea mm. about anything Zelda-related. Didn't know the characters were... or the character archetypes were repeated across games. I thought they were all unique to Breath of the Wild, which (laughs) was a surprise when I played Skyward Sword and realized that wasn't the case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think if if, if you had this as number one, I'd say... Yeah, that makes sense. You it's know? one of those things where I think, it, yeah, my we'll get into my five to one uh, next week. But where at this point we're talking about, we are splitting the hairs of the molecule, the molecules of the hairs to make yeah. these different distinctions uh, between different games. But yeah, for me it was just 
Breath, I mean, everyone knows what, why Breath of the Wild is a big deal, but it meant quadruply as much back in 2017 just because of the competition it was up against and how formulaic and boring the open world genre had gotten and how many conversations we're doing in the rounds across that year of, you know, has the indus- is the industry losing its way? Um, are we giving too much into microtransactions? You know, that was the year of Battlefront 2, Shadow of War, and For Honor, which were just loaded with monetization. Yeah. And then here was Nintendo just going like, here's just a, just a game, just a reminder that a game doesn't need a checklist of things to do. It's just an experience. Experience and it's like you know, there's verticality to it. It's about a 3D space. It's just, it's just a video game. Like, just play it. Honestly, it kind of broke open world games for me for this right. next six years because not just because of the reasons you mentioned there about you don't need a checklist of stuff mm. to do. Follow your nose. Like, just go out and explore and see what you find. But also the interactivity of the world itself. Mm. After playing Breath of the Wild and using my brain and everything in the environment to navigate that environment environment it just made other open world games feel so sterile and artificial and like i was playing around in a static toy box where i didn't have any influence over the environment itself i was just getting funneled down these really beautiful um sandboxes that i couldn't actually manipulate Mm -hmm. because everything you can you can manipulate everything in breath of the wild and it makes for some incredibly memorable moments, but incredibly satisfying moments of um, ingenuity where you feel like a genius because you've figured out a solution mm. and you're not sure if that solution is what the developers wanted, that but whole thing. it worked. Yeah, that whole thing of like the way the physics work in it, where it's, oh, better if I pick up a leaf, I can waft a, a sail and blow myself across the wind, uh, across the water or whatever. Blow myself, I said. <laughs> and uh, like something like that, or like the fact that you can just, if there's an open flame next to some meat, it'll cook it or yeah. whatever. Yeah, Breath of the Wild's my number six. Oh, what is yours? My number six is um, The Last of Us Part 2. Shout! It's on here. The Last of Us Part 1 isn't, but it would, again, be in my top 20. So Last of Us is in. in my top five. Is it? Yes. I'll throw that in as a caveat. If, you've, if you're if you a long-time listener of this podcast and channel, you'll know I love The Last of Us Part 2. I bang about it. Or bang on about it all the time. Mm. But the reason that it's... it's it, the reason that it has stayed one of my favorites of all time is its exploration of grief. And I think mm. that's going to get even more pronounced the older I get. Because the older I get, the more grief I experience, the more people... I lose the more people who pass away, the more funerals I go to. Mm. And I cannot overstate how well, especially the opening hours of The Last of Us 2, captures that sense of loss and grief and the conflicting emotions that you have around that. And the fact that that's in a triple A video game mm. that has incredible combat, in my opinion, and these mad plot twists, to me, is kind of a minor miracle. I personally, and I'm sure there are other great games out there, I have played good games about grief, not seen it kind of explored in such a potent way Mm -hmm. before in terms of how Ellie kind of longs for this person that she will never see again. All of the unspoken things that she wishes she could have said, all Mm -hmm. of the things that she now won't be able to do, things that she views she's been outright robbed of. That sense of regret Mm. that tinges The Last of Us Part Two. Like I said, it's so important and resonates so much with me that it will forever be a favorite game of mine. Um, 
um, I think, forever. It was initially the number two spot in here, but I've knocked <laughs> it down a little bit. Uh, but I can only see it, honestly, growing as time goes on unless they somehow manage to reverse it with The Last of Us Part 3. But I don't think they will I don't because think it so. still works. I think uh, Last of Us Part 2 will only age better and better and better. I think it was the... Obviously, uh, to some portions of the internet, it was the victim of some of the leaks that happened, but then to everyone else who just went through it, um, maybe it wasn't the sequel that you wanted. That's where I come down. Like, it's still beautifully made and I can talk about it for hours and hours and hours. I just prefer the original one. I um, mean, like overall, but we'll get to that next week. I think for Last of Us Part 2, like you said, there are so many mature themes in there and they are handled so well. I think for me, it's the the fury that comes out of grief, like the sort of like this, just the F the world, what's even the point side of it? Yeah. Um, which, like you said, as you get older, you experience a lot more of that. Um, and it's just like the fact that they... The way that they've like rolled that in with Ellie's overall motivation, that she's trying to do right by Joel, but she is sort of acting out. She is kind of like um, taken over by the aggression side of it, and she's trying to like use all these lessons that Joel has taught her. Um, you know, and then the the way that that game ends, all this stuff that happens with Dina and everything, and obviously there's all this stuff with Abby as well. It's a whole other thing. Um, the Last of Us Two was like thoroughly, thoroughly impressive to me. I like absolutely loved my time with it. It was just that when I hit the credits, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's what I don't know if that's what I wanted from The Last of Us Two, but like, I'm glad you guys did it. It's funny. It wasn't initially what I wanted from the game, but mm. it just it blindsided me so much, but in a good way because I couldn't believe the story they were telling and just the way that Ellie's kind of entire motivation hinges around on. Um, like, like I said, what she was robbed of. Her final conversation with mm. Joel, like gets me in tears every time because it's the promise of a future that she'll never have yeah. and how much the lack of that future it just impacts her is so relatable but even away from the themes and the, the story of The Last of Us I just think it plays really well it does well. play really well it's honestly maybe my favourite playing third person shooter ever <laughs> what about Resident Evil 4 remake no this is better man. <laughs> this is better there's something about the heft to it there's something about the weight to it it's Max Payne 3 on steroids I think there's a sense of grittiness to it there's a sense of griminess to it to the point where um, yeah I return to it for the story of course but I could just play those combat encounters I just reloaded those over and over and over and over again. I love that we talked about slow motion before. I love the slow motion toggles because it lets you drink in just how unbelievably incredible Naughty Dog's animation department is. Yeah, um, yeah I agree with you. Like, I feel like they they do have like sort of like leaden kind of weightier combat, um, but it's not. It's what Rockstar kind of are trying to get to kind of thing. I feel like it's a if you took a Red Dead Two and refined it even more, it's Last of Us Two. Um, I love that they maintain responsiveness. It's always the thing that get, that annoys me about most games. If I'm pushing the button, I want to be able to. Do do it yeah um, and in the last of us too they always find a way to like segue that animation into a dodge or into like a go but like slide through part of the environment or something else you can chain everything together that's it it's so fluid it's so fluid and it's the only game a lot of games have tried to evoke a sense of scrappiness a sense that mm. you're surviving in the world that you're improvising in the world but no game has done it as effectively as the last of us part two for me in the way that you are you know you're picking up this bottle you're throwing it you're using your last round of your mm. rifle to headshot the last enemy just before they managed to get a shot on you. That sense of you are just scraping through every yeah. combat encounter, no matter what difficulty you're playing on, uh, is so pervasive and, of course, adds to the themes, but just feels so... Um, good to play in and of itself. It's why I'm, I really am looking forward to the Last of Us um, multiplayer game because mm. that core framework, 
I could play for hours and hours and hours. The idea of like, because yeah, that scrappiness is a really good uh, name for it. I forget exactly where the level is in two. I think it's when you meet the um, Seraphites, but there's like that bit where it's a collapsed, like multi-story car park yes. or like a collapsed highway. And you're sort of making your way up that. And you can play the angles game quite nicely and dodge behind all these different cars and throw these different distraction items out and things things like that. And like you said, it's like you maybe ran out of ammo if you're on a higher difficulty, but you still have your knife and you yeah. can still get a couple of hits in. If you get if you just ambush someone at the right time and you are thinking in the way that the, those people would be thinking to get through that scenario um, and it just walks that line so well that's it I have no idea the magic I have no idea the magic they use for the AI system but it feels like incredibly human or <laughs> you know obviously not human but the most responsive and smart that mm. I've experienced in a third person shooter where it does feel like I'm having to outthink them you know obviously there are times where it breaks and someone will just run at you while you've got a <laughs> shotgun pointed at their face but that person the, might have done that anyway maybe for the most part I do think it works and keeps you on your toes thinking two steps ahead like you mentioned mm -hmm. and you also just mentioned the the levels which Seattle as a place mm. is one of my favorite video game settings how wet that place feels <laughs> and how stodgy <laughs> it feels I don't know what again what magic they were doing with the PlayStation controller but every time it rains in that game and Ellie's got a hood up mm. you can feel like the pitter patter of it it really feels like you're getting drenched which is so <laughs> strange and I don't know how they pulled it off um, but yeah Seattle being destroyed being flooded I love that setting. It's kind of almost mythical. It's larger than life. It feels mm. exaggerated, but it it somehow works. For me, it's the, the my favorite bit of it is right towards the end. It's all like for me that whole game, like there are the themes of grief, but I feel like the the bigger thing I took away from it was just this wider sort of commentary on like on um hate, like whether it's industrialized yeah. hate or like sort of whether it's through like a military system, whether it's through religion or just whatever, like the idea that we just cannot seem to just get on. Like then um, there's a Rise Against song called The Violence about right. like are we just predisposed to this? Like, like, is there no way that we can ever just sort of make amends and carry on? Dirty centrist over here doing this. <laughs> but uh, but that's one of the things. And so, towards the end of Last of Us 2, when everything is burning and it's just like, look how much how much effort was put into this encampment. It's now just all going up in flames and how apocalyptic that all looks. Yeah. And, uh, and their framing of human-on-human -human violence at the very end, Ellie versus Abby. Um, that was the stuff that really... I was in bits by the end of Last of Us 2, but it was partly because of how much Ellie had been through yeah. and Abby. But then also just that that commentary on just the ability, the, like, or the lack of the ability that we have to just get on with each other. Well, like Disco Elysium called me, the big uh, commie in me also, <laughs> um, yeah, loves that kind of, that entire approach to, like you said, those cycles of violence, which mm. I know are being talked about um, so much, but the way that's kind of like summed up with what you mentioned there, there's another idol song, fully enough, where it's like fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, yeah. hate leads to that was Yoda. whatever and stuff. It also was yeah. Yoda. He said that in The Phantom Menace. <laughs> and you know what? He wasn't wrong there either. He but wasn't. yeah, the way that naturally progresses and Ellie's looking for someone to take her anger and hatred out on that she uses just, but then you see that other side and they have just uh, like an equal amount of claim to what they were doing yeah. just because they were hurt in the exact same way. And it's like, well, where do we meet in the middle? Mm. How do we get over this? All of that stuff. I think it's really good. <laughs> I also think it's really good. Do you know what else is really good? Is the wind-up. This is our being off first half of the greatest games of all time. 10 through 6 for me is Assassin's Creed 2, The Elder Scrolls 5, Skyrim, God of War 2018, Halo 2, and Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. What a list. For mine, um, 10 to 6 is <laughs> Call of Duty Warzone at 10, <laughs> Disco Elysium at 9, Mass Effect at 8, Silent Hill 2 at 7, and The Last of Us Part 2 at 6. And look, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I think my <laughs> top 5 
with. It, there's some good games in there. That's what I want to say. <laughs> there should be. Stay out of the house, number one. <laughs> I feel like uh, overall, it's fun going back through our entire lives worth of video games. But join us next week where both of us will go through our five to one and see what our favorite games of all time each are. And for now, this has been The Wind Up. I've been Scott Tilford. That's been Josh Brown. Always a pleasure, Scott Tilford. And right now, before we get into the proper outro of this, I'm yes. going to make a guess. This is the outro. It is, it yeah. is, it is. But I'm going to guess right now, uh-huh. having fared this out, your uh-huh. number one is going to be Metal Gear Solid 1. Don't tell me. That's my guess for next week. I'll catch you all next week. See you later. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.